Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The Jazz Loft Radio Series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. A classic jazz document that's come down to us over the decades has been this Riverside live recording of the Thelonious Monk Orchestra concert at Town Hall in 1959. The man who ran Riverside and produced the record remembers the concert as a remarkable event. You know, you go back to that period and just that whole thing of putting together a 10-piece band for a live performance by Monk was about as far out an idea as you could come up with. You could say it was a case of downtown meeting uptown. Genius jazzman Monk, who'd been playing in downtown clubs like the Vanguard and the Five Spot, was to team up with Hall Overton, a revered Juilliard music instructor who had a jazz side, too. Overton was a jazz pianist and a gifted arranger. Together, Thelonious Monk and Hall Overton would transcribe and orchestrate some of Monk's tunes for a concert hall performance by a large ensemble. In that pre-Lincoln Center era, Town Hall was the number two concert venue in New York, in fact. They would write the charts and rehearse at 821 6th Avenue. Hall had a loft apartment. I think he taught there in this building. Harry Columbi was Thelonious Monk's manager at the time. Very smelly building. I always thought there were dead rats in there. And there probably were, you know, in the wood. It was creaky and, and had this specific, this, this real interesting odor. Hall was on the third, I think it was third floor. And on top was Eugene Smith. That was the jazz loft. More on those rehearsals in a minute. Around that time, Thelonious Monk was just coming back into the public consciousness. He'd lost his cabaret card a few years before due to a questionable drug possession charge, and in those days you couldn't play in New York clubs without that card, which was issued by the police department, remembers Columbia. Police cards came about during World War II to protect ourselves from saboteurs who would infiltrate any place where liquor is sold uh, and servicemen might spill out something about a convoy, about where they're going. And so that everyone, including hat-check girls, anybody working where liquor was sold, had to get permission to be vetted, be registered and fingerprinted. So by the 50s, the cabaret card was a vestigial regulation. With his card suspended, Monk hadn't been seen that much lately. But uh, he had a cult following, of course, and uh, a lot of that was really based on records. Rutgers University jazz historian Dan Morgenstern lived in New York and was following Monk's career at that point. And once he signed with Riverside, it was a big boost to his career because Orrin Keepnews, who was the part owner of the label and, of course, the producer, really got into Monk. The late Keep News had just started his record company, something of a rival to Prestige Records, and he needed to sign some talent. And it was in 1955 that I learned that Monk was very unhappy at Prestige, and they were very unhappy with him, and maybe something could come of that for us. Monk's first recording for the new label, playing the music of Duke Ellington, attracted enormous attention. Others followed, and in 1957, Monk's cabaret card was finally restored. 
he performed to great acclaim at the Five Spot, a tiny club near the Bowery, with a quartet with John Coltrane. They were there for months, and it made headlines for the musicians and the club. This is a recording by the same group, same year. So it was possible to believe that the 59 orchestra concert might help to solidify what was already a huge breakthrough for Monk. Monk, master of the distinctive touch and the unexpected interval, would be visible and loud. A piano, seven brass instruments, bass and drums. He and Overton, his tall, easygoing orchestrator, looked for a first-class ten-piece band. We were all excited because it was different music. The late Eddie Burt had been tapped to play trombone in the group. You have to have your head set for Monk. I mean, he plays different than anybody, so he had to adapt. They asked Robert Northern, now known as Brother Ah, to play French horn in the ensemble. This was an occasion that nobody would want to miss. And the instrumentation. When I asked Hall Overton, what's instrumentation? And he told me, you know, tuba. And he said, I said, what? Well, definitely, I want to be a part of this. We had two different ideas. It would not be your average jazz concert. You want the melody to be heard. We knock you above. Is that what you want? Or you want to hear So these weren't ordinary preparations either. It called for a degree of organization that really wasn't a part of the jazz scene at that time. The big point to me about the town hall situation was simply that this was, as it was being prepared, a really inordinate amount of rehearsal time. We know a lot more now about that inordinate amount of rehearsal time thanks to the jazz loft tapes. Photographer W. Eugene Smith's tape recorders were running as Monk and his orchestrator and collaborator, Overton, worked to arrange the tunes for the ten players. We can hear Monk and Overton sitting together day after day at two upright pianos in Overton's studio in that very dilapidated loft building, figuring out the orchestrations. They picked six tunes to transcribe. How long do you want to hold that The jazz pianist Jason Moran has heard the tapes and used some of the Monk moments in his own multimedia tribute to Monk, In My Mind. That process was remarkable, chord by chord, melody by melody, back and forth for hours. Monk pacing around the loft, hearing his footsteps. There is that presence always of Monk at these rehearsals. A man known for silence, just talking away. Those good natured exchanges are just what musicians like Robert Northern remember about the collaboration. There was a mutual respect and admiration between Monk and Overton. Let me hear once more, Monk. I want to get all these details. I mean, when something wasn't quite working the way Monk wanted it, I mean, the, the love and the concern that Overton had to get it right was just beautiful to watch. And we'd sit and wait and talk while they went over to a corner somewhere and discussed it and go to the piano. It was just beautiful. 
Robin Kelly, Thelonious Monk's biographer, hears genuinely new information on these recordings. The common lore is that Hall Overton essentially took Monk's music and masterfully came up with these arrangements. Uh, and clearly, the tapes suggest that not only was Monk the master in some ways, but Overton really did try to um, be true to his conception. And Monk, in turn, honored Overton's skill as well. They need each other. Hall Overton has no idea how Monk comes up with these harmonies and these clusters of notes next to each other. And Monk, I'm sure he has an idea how to arrange it, but he also has to show Hall this stuff so that Hall can plant it on the other musicians. And so there's like a, a need for each other, which makes a great collaboration. The spirit of the partnership is especially evident in the Little Rudy Tootie sessions. That was possibly the most adventurous arrangement that Hall did. It was a challenge for everybody, to be honest with you. That seemed to be the one that we went over more than any other tune in rehearsal with Little Rudy Tootie. The challenge for this tune was how to harmonize it, how to balance unison and harmony. And in places where, you know, where, where harmony is, you know, you put harmony in. And you, unison, you know, right. you know, just that is. And you put harmony, you know, in those little places, you know. Yeah. You put now and then, you put some harmony. You know, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. All right, crazy. And it gives us that free sound. You know, everything sounds free, you know. At one point, they go back to a recording Monk had made with Gary Mapp and Art Blakey in 1952, just to see if it gives them any inspiration. This is what Monk's solo on the record sounded like. In their arranging session, Monk and Overton zeroed right into the piano solo and used it. Monk's solo on that, the piano solo on that, is what got orchestrated into being the really large and flashy part of the arrangement. What he's got there is the seven horns in the band playing what had been Monk's solo on a trio record. Now, what about this? There's the band, tuba, French horn, trombone, and all, playing Monk's piano lines in unison. Because, as Robin Kelly says, Thelonious Monk just wasn't that interested in the traditional big band sound. He wanted a big band to sound like a small band. He wanted the ten-piece to sound like a quartet or a quintet. 
it parallels his piano playing. Because when you actually figure out how he voices his chords, it's not a matter of adding more notes, it's a matter of taking away. And it sounds powerful, but it's very bare and stripped down. And that bareness is the power. Paul had to know how to write for Thelonious. You don't write like a band, you write like a piano. We were a big piano. Once Monk and Overton had settled on the charts, the tent-tent went to work, the musicians climbing the memorably creaky stairs up to rehearsal. Rehearsal started at 3 a.m. So I said, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of late. But that was the time that everybody could make. That was after the clubs had closed, because everybody was playing a Sunday night club somewhere. So uh, between 2 and 3, people began to congregate and hold over and just loft, and we were there until 7 or 8 in the morning rehearsing. The struggles to master Little Rudy Tootie continued. And uh, Monk, who was a beautiful person, Monk knew it was a challenge. We were rehearsing it, and there was one part of that, that, that composition which I could not get rhythmically. And Monk never embarrassed me, and he went, uh, at one point he just said, he stopped the band, he says, okay, take a break. And he knew I was watching him. He walked into the corner of the, of the loft and danced my whole part. Note by note, he danced rhythmically, and I watched his feet, and I played it perfectly after I watched him. The late night, early morning rehearsals continued for a couple of weeks. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, I mean, nobody even looked around. I mean, we, we were focused on boom. We went into this project. It was magical. The aura was just magical. We couldn't wait to get the rehearsal. Nobody was sleepy, nobody was tired. We greeted each other as just loving brothers and let's get to work. The band worked over every tune with exacting standards. On February 28, 1959, sometime in the late afternoon, the Thelonious Monk Tentet left their rehearsal in the 6th Avenue Loft and headed about a mile uptown to Town Hall. The buzz got around what we were doing. And uh, everybody was curious. Nobody could imagine what this is going to sound like. I mean, many, many musicians from far and wide came to this concert. I mean, we get to town hall to do the concert. The late Phil Woods, alto sax. And it was magic time. All of a sudden, everything was clear. That band played so well that night. We played the heck out of that music, you know? Monk was in rare form. I mean, he was even dancing great, you know. It was clearly a night to remember. The critics at the time were divided on whether Monk's music was best heard played by a band that size. But the enthusiasm for the result seems to have outlasted the criticism. It was amazing. It was amazing. I get goosebumps talking about it because I had never experienced that. I mean, you know, we left up. You know, it was energizing. For them to have felt that you could fill town hall for a Monk band concert, uh, and they were right, you could fill it, that was an indication that he had achieved something that very few modern jazz musicians were in a position to achieve. For Hall Overton, the man behind the music, 
it was less of a public boost. Overton, a composer, teacher, arranger, musical guru, and remarkable communicator, has stayed in the background, but his role as collaborator was clear. Hall had a special feel for it. He did a great job. And the thing about Hall and Monk is they were both piano players, so that uh, made it special. The Town Hall concert lives on through the live recording and the memories of musicians and audience members, and now the Jazz Loft tapes. And that little Rudy Tootie, the product of hours and days of struggling, singing, playing, and dancing, still dazzles. This is the Jazz Loft radio series. In the next episode, more tapes. We hear more of the Gene Smith recordings of music and conversation taped at the Jazz Loft, a welcoming place that was often very difficult to leave. Oh, come on, one more. Oh, on, yeah, one you promised one more. Oh, no. Take your coat off, man. Oh, no. One more. Oh, one more. Oh, boy, come on, man. That's coming up in episode nine. Thanks to Sam Stevenson and to the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishko. This series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.